Good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist Church here in Rocky Top, Tennessee. We're going to be continuing our study and our look in the book of Acts, one of the one of the most wonderful books of the Bible, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 1. Today, logically, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is a very important chapter in the entire Bible. And we're going to be looking at how the Holy Spirit empowers the church. In 1962, a lot of the intensity of the culture wars that were so prevalent in the 60s with all of the turbulence and uncertainty of the era, we're starting to gain some traction. And one of the most legendary musicians of all time, and particularly of that area, era, excuse me, was a man by the name of Bob Dylan. And he released a song in 1962 called Blowin' in the Wind. The song is three verses long, and the first verse goes like this. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Yes, and how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Now, why bring this up? I find that we can often keep our fingers on the cultural pulse by observing the art it produces, particularly the music. And this song, even though it's old by a lot of measures, it has a far reach that has expanded over the many decades from its original release. In fact, the song has been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, and even into this century, it's placed as number 14 on Rolling Stone's Best Songs of All Time list out of 500 songs. And it asks several rhetorical questions, and then it refrains over and over, the answer is blowing in the wind. It's intentionally ambiguous. And it's force, it forces us to ask the question, is the answer so obvious that it is as the wind blowing and hitting our faces, or is it as the wind blowing and we can't capture it, we can't latch on to it? Who knows the answer to that? And perhaps that's how Bob Dylan would answer that question. Our world is searching for answers, and to a degree, mankind is asking the right questions. Often, we hear in so many words, how does my life have meaning and purpose? Or how do we find lasting peace in a world so prone to violence and so prone to war? As Christians, of course, we can point people to the only one who can answer with truth, hope, peace, love, and redemption. And that person is Jesus Christ. And we're learning how the early church grew, miraculously grew from its small beginnings, and it's a model for us today as believers. Again, last week we looked in Acts 1 where Jesus somewhat curiously told his followers to wait. And they were to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2 we see the arrival of the Holy Spirit in dramatic fashion. And it's an incredible display of Jesus building his church. You can join me if you'd like. I'm going to read just the first few verses here in this opening account of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who were speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Progeria and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Now this event, this rather dramatic event, takes place right before Peter prepares and delivers an amazing sermon. Peter alone is one of the greatest redemption stories in the entire Bible, and his journey with Jesus will be well worth our attention someday, but I want to focus on this singular event that along with the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a key event in God's redemptive plan for all humanity, even though we sometimes pass over this a little bit more than we do some of the other biblical stories. This event that we just read about really involves two separate responses, or two separate things, the arrival of the Holy Spirit and then the people's reaction to the arrival. We read in verse 1 that they were all gathered together in one place. This would have been about 120 people based on some information that's given to us in Acts 1. And I have to tell you that this number by itself is significant, 120 believers. 120 Christians, just 120 individuals who had given their life to Jesus Christ, that at this moment was the church. The ratio in the known world was about one Christian for every three million people. 120 Christians to a total world population of over 320 million persons. These early Christians, the early church were uneducated, they had no access to technology. They were persecuted, ostracized, and marginalized. They were under the dominion of a pagan, pagan empire with hostile forces on every side and lived in a world soaked in sin. But God was acting in a dramatic way that sent a blaze throughout the world. The Holy Spirit has arrived. And as they were gathered together, the day of Pentecost was being celebrated. Now, what was Pentecost? Well, Pentecost is a Jewish festival that occurs 50 days after the Passover. We still celebrate it as Christians today, and in fact, it will be May 28th of this month, 50 days after we celebrated Easter. Now, Pentecost in the Old Testament was called the Feast of Weeks, and in the Greek, Pentecost is just the Greek word for meaning 50th. So in the Old Testament, the Jewish people would have referred to this as the Feast of Weeks, and it celebrated the gathering of the wheat harvest. It was a harvest celebration, and in fact, it was one of three harvest celebrations in which all able-bodied Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem at this moment, the population would have swelled greatly because of this celebration, because of this feast. And upon entering Jerusalem for Pentecost, in the temple, an offering was to be given of two loaves of bread that had been made with leaven. It was recognized that the grain had been brought in, and the two loaves were now the produce of the many pieces of the individual grains. And this symbolized the unity among the people of God and how God had brought the many 
into one. And as they did this offering, it was called a wave offering, and the worshipers would literally enter the appropriate place of worship in the temple, and they would take these loaves of bread, and they would wave them towards the heavens, signifying their gratitude for God's provision and the grace that he had given to them. Now, there's a lot of significance to this event in both the Old and the New Testaments, because some see in the New Testament the two loaves of bread being emblematic of how God would now both unite the Jew and Gentile under the redemption of God's plan. But on this day of Pentecost that we just read about, God does something new, but not something out of the blue or unexpected. If you go back into the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Joel who had prophesied a significant event that would happen in the last days. This is Joel. He says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I, God, will pour out my spirit. Now, Peter will quote this sermon, but we're not going to make it there today. But Joel was saying that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. In the Old Testament, to be sure, God the Holy Spirit was active and working in the world. But it seemed to be events that were more isolated and on special occasions. We read about the giants of the faith, such as Moses and David, being filled with the Holy Spirit's power to do a special task or a work for God. But it was temporary and not something that happened to everyone. But God had spoken through Joel and promised something, again, spectacular, that God's Spirit would be poured out on all people. And on the day of Pentecost, this happened in a very intense way. There are two supernatural events that take place at the onset here. There's this mighty rushing wind and then divided tongues of what seemed to be fire that appeared. Now, it's always crucial that we understand how intentional the inspired biblical authors are with their language. There's words like mighty wind and fire here. They're not used merely for color and for drama, but they're used to harken back to great spiritual and scriptural truths. Wind was a powerful force in the Bible, and wind was always viewed as being under God's dominion. Isaiah tells us that the wind is that of God's scorching breath. And Job says that God's, in God's hand is the breath of all mankind. And going all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, what's happening here is just as God had breathed into Adam that life-giving physical breath at the creation of mankind, so now Jesus breathes into believers the breath of the new life, of new spiritual life with the Holy Spirit. And then we have the fire. Luke, who's the author, is very careful to say what appeared to be like or as fire, but don't miss the punch here. The image is that of a fire that appeared overhead and then divided into tongues and then empowered each believer to communicate the gospel miraculously. And again, in the Bible, fire is often associated with the presence of God. Fire is a purifier of souls. In Exodus, God led the Israelites by a great pillar of fire at night. And the Bible in the New Testament refers to God as a consuming fire in the book of Hebrews. And this empowering gave all those dwelling in this upper room the ability to speak in other languages. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit had given them utterance. Now recall that Jerusalem would be filled with pilgrims from all over 
the known world, people who would be speaking many different languages. In fact, this is one of the most accurate descriptions of the Jewish diaspora that we have, where the Jews had been, had been spread all over the known world, and yet now had rejoined together in Jerusalem for this Feast of Weeks. And the Holy Spirit was using the few believers that were there to share the glorious story of Jesus Christ with all of these Jews, with all of these different languages who were there. It was a miraculous outpouring. Now, the tongues here that we're referring to, to speak in their own tongues, were simply the many different languages of the people in Jerusalem at one time. And God would use this event as so many thousands upon thousands were gathered at this central hub to birth the church into the world. Verse 2, and, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? This is where I would like to follow up with some applications. What does this mean? What do we learn about the Holy Spirit? Well, first we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised in Acts 1, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus was baptizing the church into one body. Again, the grains of the harvest celebrated for Pentecost, the harvest that so many were grateful for, would now be baked into one loaf and be one. Now, that may sound a little bit of a stretch, but I'm not making this up. This was part of both the symbolism and supernatural work of God that he was doing on the day of Pentecost. Paul would elaborate on this miracle in his letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he wrote, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now think of how amazing this is. Regardless of a person's natural talents, regardless of a person's intellectual capacity, size, strength, stature, affluence, we are all baptized as one in the Spirit of God. No matter the color of our skin, our ethnic background, or where we were born, we are all baptized as one in the Spirit of God. No matter our past or the sin that once so entangled us, we are all baptized as one in the Spirit of God. And this is something that happens the moment a person repents of their sin and gives their life to Christ. It does not come afterward at a certain moment in time if we check all the right good Christian boxes, but it is a baptism that results in the supernatural birth of a new believer. You know, Jesus talks about this in the most famous conversation in the entire Bible, John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We are supernaturally buried with Christ by the Holy Spirit and raised to new life by the Holy Spirit with a new nature. And then we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Just before Jesus ascended, 
he referenced a promise that the Holy Spirit would come. And we have this recorded for us in John 14. If John 3 is the most famous of biblical chapters, I think John 14 is the most comforting. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death, but he's also reminding him them excuse me, that he will rise again. And he promises the arrival of the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Occasionally, again, people have the mistaken idea that a person is saved and then at some point later is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Or it's a random event that God does, that God does and executes sporadically. But that isn't true. Just like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the moment a person is saved, the Holy Spirit dwells and comes in and abides with him or her. It's two sides of the same coin so to speak. And then we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. A couple of months ago, we received a fine-looking wedding invitation, and there was this thick envelope with this exquisite writing, that beautiful calligraphy-type writing, which is an art form in and of itself. And the paper of the envelope had this marbly look to it that seemed to be textured. But when you flipped it on the back, there was this stunning wax seal that had been placed over the area where one would open the envelope. And since it was addressed to Charity and I, we were the only ones that were intended to open the envelope. Now, this seal was mass-produced, and it had some adhesive, and so in a lot of ways it was a very beautiful, glorified sticker, and that was fine. But back in the day, seals on documents were often something to behold. Wax was melted, typically over a candle, and then a special seal, classically a, with a thick wooden handle with a stamp-like press at the bottom, would be dipped into the wax, and then that seal would be pressed about the scroll or letter to seal the document. In the ancient times and in biblical times, seals were used almost exclusively by rulers, by kings, and it showed the official will of the king, and once it was opened, the will of the king could be enacted. But once that seal was attached, it meant the act of the king was complete. It signaled it was done, it was finished. And Paul picks up on this imagery in Ephesians. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And I love the truth. And I love the imagery of this. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the seal, the stamp of the Holy Spirit on us, and no one can take that away. And then finally, we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.4 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get too tricky here with what I'm about to say, because some of the words that we've talked about and some of the phrases sound similar, and even some of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit has overlapping miracles. So when a person is saved, yes, they're baptized with the Spirit, and they are indwelled by the Spirit, and they are sealed by the Spirit. But the early Christians were also told to be filled with the Spirit. Now, this wasn't a constant one-and-done event. 
Being filled with the Spirit requires discipline. It requires submission. Being filled with the Spirit requires obedience. It requires faith. It requires reliance on who God is and what God wants us to do. Now, you might can tell based on the many references so far that Paul speaks much of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. So listen to what he writes in Ephesians 5. There's a lot going on here, but listen. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Here we're seeing that there's actions that need to be taken. There's a mindset, there's a heart set that needs to be in the life of every single Christian to be filled with the Spirit. And I'm going to get a little technical here for just a moment, and I hope you'll bear with me. When I first started teaching, I taught English. I taught English for several years. And language and how we express ourselves is a beautiful thing. And how words and phrases are structured tell us a lot about what's being communicated. And here, when the Bible speaks, when Paul wrote, be filled with the Spirit, it's given in the imperative sense. In other words, it's a command that's being given that's of tremendous importance. If I said, quick, run out of the building, it's on fire. I'm communicating how important it is to get out of the building with the imperative use of the sentence. I'm not kind of casually saying we should exit the building, making some kind of declarative statement. Or I'm not asking an interrogative thing. I'm not asking a question. I'm not saying, do you think it would be a good idea to exit the building? I'm saying, do it, get out. Likewise, when Paul tells the church at Ephesus, be filled with the Spirit, he isn't giving a suggestion. He isn't asking a question. He isn't just saying something nice. He is saying something necessary. It is necessary for us to be filled with the Spirit so we can fulfill the commission of God to go and make disciples of all nations. And this filling, this supernatural filling of the Holy Spirit of God takes regular people like you and me. It takes regular folks that are sinful, folks that have no good in us, and it can use our weaknesses for the glory of God to do grand things with small numbers, and bless in spite of our inabilities. God simply says, trust me in faith, and he will work wonders. Wait upon the Lord. You know, the believers waited, and God filled them with his spirit, and those who stood around him were amazed. You know, Bob Dylan was almost right. The answer isn't blowing in the wind, but it is obvious to those who seek and submit to the truth. I saw some interesting information the other day, and I want to share it with you. It was some information on Generation Z, and I think Generation Z are folks right now that were born after 1996, and I think my generation, millennials, and the next generation, again, Gen Z, were always kind of competing on who can be the most annoying, but Gen Z Christians are bringing some interesting perspective to the church, and for Gen Z Christians who have stayed in the church, these would be people, again, born in 1996 through now, so kind of your 
kind of your mid twenties sort of the kind of your eighteen to to twenty some to thirty something folks. Listen to what they said. They stayed in the church because older people in the church, older Christians, have been mentors to them. These older people have been fathers to those who have no fathers. They've been mothers to those who have no mothers. They've been brothers and sisters who have no family. They've been friends to have no friends to those who have no friends. They've been personal guides and caretakers for those who hear from a thousand different voices, but they don't trust them, but they have found trust in older people in the church. <clears throat> you know, that's a beautiful thing to me. Older people whose children are grown and sometimes their grandchildren are older who were here, who were selflessly loving younger people in the name of Christ. And if I'm being honest, I thought of every one of you here, it's such a powerful display of the heart I believe that all of you have. And you know, this last day, last Wednesday night, that love was on display, just with these seemingly small gestures of obedience that over time produce a good harvest. You know, we had six young people with us here on Wednesday night, and I realized that that number isn't gigantic, but that was such a blessing. I didn't know, if I'm totally honest with you, if if we would have anybody, and I had kind of prepared myself that we may not, and that we would have gotten started with those small numbers. But I want to celebrate that small victory with you. Six people that were here, some youth and some kids, with people at First Baptist Church loving on them, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and building relationships with them and their families. And I hope that that seed grows and flourishes. And I still know it's going to take time. But I'm so grateful for you all and the love and the prayers that you have that made that possible. You know, on Pentecost, the birth of the church came with a mighty rushing wind, with a fire and a miraculous display of God's working power. So let's not forget that the same Holy Spirit that enabled the early church to do the work they did, to preach and to transform lives, that is still the same Holy Spirit that is with us today. Next week, we're going to look at Peter's Pentecost sermon. But remember that their secret was no secret at all. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Our Heavenly Father God, thank you, Lord, that you are the one that is building the church. You are the chief cornerstone, you are the master builder, and you are the one who has promised to build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God, help us to take what we have heard here today and use it and apply it to every aspect of our life, God. For when we go out of these the walls of this church, we interact with so many different people. And Holy Spirit, we pray to be filled with the love for you and your truth, that you will keep us from sin and keep our hearts pure and keep our hearts and minds focused on the mission that you have given us. And God, I pray that you will continue to bless First Baptist Rocky Top, that you will draw people in and help us to join in this beautiful, beautiful building of your church, building it up 
to reach the community of Rocky Top and reaching the world. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins and for paying it all for us, knowing that our sins were not overlooked, but that they were paid for by Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.